Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Well, welcome again to Bible Center Church. I am Pastor Mike, and I get to serve here on staff uh, as the discipleship pastor. So I get to speak into spiritual growth and into multiplication. How do we grow our groups, and how do we go deeper in Christ? Uh, I'm so glad you're here. I'm also glad that you are here. Those of you who are joining us at home online or maybe just hanging out on TV watching us, we're so glad that you're a part of this time. You connecting with us means a lot. And my hope is that we worship together. My hope is that we sit under the authority of God's word together. If you've been following along with our sermon series, you'll know that we're working through our membership statement of faith. Uh, The series is actually called Overwhelmed because our desire, as we're in this part of our membership statement of faith, is that we simply sit back, look at who our God is, and we're overwhelmed by his beauty, by his authority, by his presence, and by his power. Uh, We've already worked through the Trinity. We've worked through God the Father, and tonight we're looking at God the Son. So it's a big subject, and uh, I want us tonight, as we look at who Jesus is, to respond by asking ourselves the question, am I following his lead? If you look at my life, am I walking in the footsteps of Jesus? Is he the most important thing? And if he's not, my encouragement tonight for me and for you is that we would follow him all the more. So my hope is that by looking at his nature and his work, that we would be encouraged and challenged to go deeper in him and to follow him with all of our heart. We live in a day and age where we just can't assume anymore that people know who Jesus is, that they know what he did, what he said, what he accomplished, or even how Jesus applies to our everyday life. Where is his influence? A lot of people did not grow up in this generation hearing any of that stuff. So there was a day when our membership statement of faith said this. Uh, In our membership statement of faith, this is what you'll find in there presently about Jesus and the work of Jesus. His virgin birth and deity, his death, burial, burial, and bodily resurrection. It's 11 words, and that's all we have. Now, for me, one thing that makes me a little nervous about where we are at the moment is the word deity is lowercase. Someone who is a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness could read this and say, I can agree with that. So there was a day when I think this worked for our membership statement of faith because people had a lot of knowledge, working knowledge, about who Jesus was and what he accomplished. But I think a lot of that is gone now. So we're in our updated membership of faith standard it looks like this. In our membership statement of faith now, it's a page and a half. Like, it didn't even all fit on this one page. So it went from 11 words to, I don't know, 250, 300 words. Why? Because we need to speak with clarity when we speak about who Jesus was. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the rest of the New Testament, as well as a lot of the Old Testament, took its time to talk about who Jesus was, what he would be like, what he would accomplish, and how it would impact our lives. So I don't want to go short in that description in our membership statement of faith. I want us to take our time and to be robust and to be very, very clear. So this is what it looks like now. On Sunday, it's going to roll out in the evening on our website. So if you'd like to go in-depth into this statement with all the verses, you can do that. You can use this membership statement of faith as a Bible study for you, for you and your wife, for you and your spouse, for you and your kids. It's designed to do that. So I look forward to you checking that out and enjoying it. So my hope for us is that we have the ability to communicate 
who Jesus is, what he's like, and what he accomplished. So we're going to start by talking about his nature. Jesus was fully divine. So we're going to work through some verses. John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus is hanging out with a group of Jewish people, and he says out loud, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if you were hanging out with a bunch of basketball fans, you brought up the name Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, they would stop and they'd want to hear what you had to say about that person because that name meant something to those basketball fans. To the Jewish community, when the name Abraham pops up, like that's the name that is most important to them. He is the patriarch. He is the father of the Jewish people. And Jesus straight up says, before Abraham, before there was any Jewish people, I am. So there's two things that are significant to that. One, Jesus is saying that I existed before even any of Israel existed. I existed before Abraham. Two, when he said and described himself as I am, the people who were listening would have known right away what he was saying. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is standing there in front of a burning bush, and God of the Old Testament speaks out loud and he says, I am. He describes himself and he names himself as I am. So in this statement, Jesus is saying, I am the God of the Old Testament. I am. Did they understand this, what he was saying? You better believe it. They picked up rocks. They were going to stone him over that. They knew from their point of view what he was saying, and from their perspective, it was blasphemy. So the response was to stone Jesus. Next verse, John 10, 30. It simply says, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now, at first glance, when you read that, it just sounds like Jesus is saying, I and the Father are of the same nature. We are one. If you spend time with people who don't believe in the deity of Christ, if you hang out with maybe a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, or maybe someone who just struggles with Jesus being God himself, they'll often say, with this verse, what Jesus is saying is, I and the Father are one in purpose, one in intention. It doesn't work. Why? Because the context speaks otherwise. In chapters 8, which we just looked at John chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, Jesus is clearly asserting and clearly saying over and over that he himself is God. So here, why would he be saying, I am God, I am God, I am God? Hey, I'm just on the same team as God. So contextually, it doesn't work. Two, the response that they have also doesn't work for this just to be a statement of purpose or intent. If he was saying to a group of Jewish people, I have the same purpose, the same intention as the God of the Old Testament, I'm team God, what do you think the people would say? Me too. Me too. This was a Jewish group. Me too. That's not what they said. They reached down again and started picking up rocks. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, the Father and I are of the same nature. And they, again, clearly thought that that was blasphemy. They understood what Jesus was saying. So we can't just say that this is Jesus speaking of them being of the same purpose. The audience didn't hear it that way. That's not the natural, simple reading of it. It is not how it fits into the context. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. I'm not going to read the whole section, just for time's sake. But 
This is a verse that people cannot work around. If you're talking to someone who struggles with the deity of Christ or is fighting against the deity of Christ, this one always gets them stuck. In this section, it says that Jesus is God. Jesus is simply called God in this section. And then the second thing is that he is worshipped by angels. In Exodus chapter 20, when you have the Ten Commandments, what's the first commandment? You shall worship no other God besides me. So when the angels bow down and worship Jesus, and no one corrects them, and the Bible doesn't say, and they were wrong, or they were in sin, it's a clear indication that Jesus must be God. Angels respond correctly to who Jesus was, deity, fully divine, God himself, and they worship him. When I ask someone who doesn't believe in Jesus being God, and I say, how do we explain this? There is no explanation. They usually say, I'm going to have to go talk to my elder. I'm going to have to go talk to someone who knows more because there is no explanation because Jesus is God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8, Jesus says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He doesn't say that I was around in the beginning. He says he is the beginning. He is the end. And from the beginning to the end, he does not change. He is the same ongoingly. The only way you can be the Alpha is if you're eternal. The only way you can be the Omega is if you're eternal, as eternal as God himself. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, All the fullness of deity dwells in him. All the, so we're on Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. All the fullness of deity dwells in him. It doesn't say 50% of deity dwells in him. It doesn't say 75%. It doesn't even say 99.999% of deity dwells in Jesus. The Bible's clear. All of the fullness of deity dwells in him completely, thoroughly, 100%. If we jump to the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the coming Messiah, the Messiah who is to come, is described as mighty God, everlasting Father. So the Messiah who is to come, who is identified as Jesus, is called in the Old Testament, mighty God, everlasting Father. Jesus, the coming Messiah in the Old Testament, is referred to as Elohim and Yahweh. Elohim is a name used for God over and over in the Old Testament. Whenever you see God, capital G-O-D, it's the name Elohim. And it's referenced not just to God the Father in the Old Testament, but to Jesus, the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. The name Yahweh. So this name usually references the power of God. Yahweh, or Jehovah, is the same name, references the fact that he is a personal God, that he's given promises, that he's made covenants, that he's with his people personally. The coming Messiah, who is Jesus, is also referred to as Yahweh in the Old Testament. Jesus is both Elohim and Yahweh. He is God. Here's a hard verse. In, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, and this is often a verse that I've heard that causes people to stumble or struggle. Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation. So some have used that to say if he's the firstborn, that means that he was the first one created, and they kind of leave it there. He wasn't, and then he was the firstborn of all creation, and then he was. 
The problem there is you're not understanding the term in this context or the intention of the term when it was written. This is not a term describing him being created, but rather it's a term of authority. It's a term of preeminence. It's not referring to Jesus being created, but what it's saying is that Jesus is categorically above creation. He's categorically above it. And context speaks to that. It's consistent. In Colossians 1, 15 through 20, it says that Jesus made all things. All things were made through him. So if he was the first thing created, the rest of the verses are lies. They're wrong. So the term, firstborn of all creation, says he's above all of creation. And then it goes on to say, he made all things. All things were made through him, by him, and to him. Can't get around it. The rest of the context tells us that. If there is a phrase in your Bible that seems unclear, use the clear things around it to help understand what it says. That's how you understand God's word. Firstborn of all creation, what does it mean? Look at the verses around it. He made all, capital A-L-L, all things because he is God, uncreated, eternal. If I had more time, I would love to show you how every visible encounter of God in the Old Testament, every time you see God at work visibly, is actually Jesus pre-incarnate. I also would love to spend more time, if I had it, but I do this in the core classes if you'd like to check them out, how all of the major events, persons, and storylines in the Old Testament point to the coming Messiah. The New Testament says those things were shrouded in mystery, but all the events, the storylines, and the characters, and many of the things that happen are pointing to the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John then say, here he is. And they take their time and walk through the life of Jesus. You see the character of Jesus, the love of Jesus, and what he does on the cross is he dies and raises from the dead. Then the rest of the New Testament points back to Jesus and says, this is why that matters. Because Jesus did this, now you live this way. All of scripture points to Jesus. So our membership statement of faith is full of essential doctrines, essential truths that you and I should know really well. But in many ways, this is the climax. This is the peak of the mountain. If there's something in your life worth dying for, it's this. Jesus is fully God. So how does knowing that Jesus is fully God impact us day to day? Is there any application or implications to the fact that he is fully God? Here's a couple thoughts. This could go on for a long time. I'm just going to pick a couple. One, when Jesus says, believe in me, trust in me, because he is fully God, you can take your whole heart, your whole life, and give it fully, completely, radically to Jesus. Why? Because he can hold it. He's fully God. So knowing that kills doubt. It kills fear in the heart of the believer. Jesus also says that all authority has been given to him. In heaven and on earth, all authority is his. And if he's God, then that means we can fully trust him in that, and we can live our life in confidence, knowing that Jesus has got it. Pandemics, hurricanes, civil unrest, Jesus has got it. It kills anxiety. It kills worry in the heart of the believer. Jesus also goes on to say in Matthew 28, 20, I will be with you always. Not when it's convenient, not sometimes. Jesus is clear. He gives you his presence if you've placed your faith in him, he gives you his presence always, 
every moment of the day. He is your companion. He is your closest friend every moment, always. He knows you better than anyone else. So what that does is it kills loneliness. It kills isolation. For because he's God, he can truly be with you always, every moment of the day, and he can know everything there is to know about you. Also, when Jesus then gives us commands, because he is fully God, we should respond with some respect. When he gives us commands, he knows what's best. His commands provide direction. They provide meaning. They provide purpose in this life. So what does that do? It kills a sense of worthlessness or meaninglessness. It stops our heart from wandering, and it puts us back on mission. It gives us what we're supposed to do that moment, that day. So what this looks like is we begin to spend our lives learning to walk in his footsteps. We're called to follow this Jesus who is fully God. And when we follow him, we think through how do we put our feet into his footprints. And one thing you're going to notice is that they are divinely placed. Because he is God, his his footprints are divinely placed. He knows exactly where they've been put and where he wants you to step. You can trust him in this life, in this journey, as you sojourn forward by placing your foot into his footsteps. And because he's God, he knew exactly where your foot needed to go. Because he loves you, he cares for you, he has authority, he's with you, and he knows the best next step for you. So Jesus was fully God. He is fully God. He's also fully human. In Luke chapter 1, verse 80, it says that he's born of a virgin. Now, he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, but he has a very natural human birth. Luke chapter 2, verse 40, it says, The child continued to grow and became strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Luke 2, 52, it says, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. How can Jesus, who is fully God, increase in wisdom? So even though Jesus is fully God, he's never had a human body before. He hasn't gone through puberty before. He hasn't learned how to build his first bench or climb a tree before. So even though he knows all things, he's still increasing in wisdom as he grows and experiences life in a human body. And in this human body, John chapter 4, verse 6, it says that, Jesus, being wearied from all of his journey, was sitting by the well. So did Jesus ever get tired? Yes, he did. He'd get worn out. If Jesus went for a run, Jesus would sweat. He'd be exhausted. His feet would hurt. He'd want to sit down, just like you and me. He had a real human body. In Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, it's a section on the temptation. So Adam and Eve, back in the garden, were tempted, and they succumbed to the temptation. They chose to rebel against God. Jesus goes through a period of fasting from food and water, and he is, because he has a human body, it wears him out. He is weakened. And in that moment, the tempter who tempted Adam and Eve tempts Jesus. And Jesus, in a human body, relies on the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to fight back this temptation, and the enemy then flees. So Jesus relies on the Holy Spirit and his power and the Word of God, just like you do and just like I do. Jesus also, as a fully human being, lived in community with others. There were times when he had crowds around him, and he was around people. 
There were times when he just had his crew with him. When I say his crew, there were men and there were women that were in the life of Jesus. He had female friends and men, male friends, and they hung together and they knew each other well. And when one of them were hurting, Jesus would hurt. He had genuine compassion and care and love for those that were in his crew. He also had his circle. So he did have those 12 guys, his disciples, who he spent a lot of time with. And finally, he had his core. His core was three. Peter, James, and John, who he went really deep with and spent a lot of time with. So we've talked a lot about the fact that Jesus had a human body, Jesus had human relationships, but Jesus also dealt with human anxiety and stress. In Luke chapter 22, verses 41 through 44, right before the cross, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus himself says that he is overwhelmed to the point of death. Jesus is experiencing the weight of what is about to come. So we know by reading scripture that he's about to be scourged, beaten, basically tormented, and then put on a cross to die a wicked, horrible death. Pain that you and I cannot begin to imagine. He knows that, but he also knows that in that moment, he's going to bear the full weight of the wrath of God Almighty. So as he's sitting there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's processing that. He's thinking about that. He feels the weight of that to where he's sweating drops like blood. And in that moment, he calls others to be with him, to intercede, to pray, to provide companionship. He knows what it, like, what it feels like to be overwhelmed. He knows the feeling of anxiety, of stress. While he was on earth, no one ever questioned whether or not he was a man. There were times when they would question whether or not he was God, but they never questioned whether or not he was a man. Even as he died on the cross, no one said, is that God? They knew it was Jesus. He was a man. And here's something interesting. Here's a, an extra nugget. He is forever both God and man. Even resurrected, Jesus could be touched, seen, he could eat. Here's a quote from a guy named John Walvoord. It says, the act of incarnation was not a temporary arrangement which ended in his death and resurrection, but as the scriptures make evident, his human nature continues forever. His earthly body, which died on the cross, being transformed into a resurrection body, suited for his glorious presence in heaven. So his human nature is still a part of who Jesus is. He is forever linked to you and me. He's forever God and man. Even in the book of Revelation, he's described as the son of man. Just an interesting thought. So how does knowing that Jesus is fully man, fully human, impact us day to day? Is there any implications? Are there any applications to that reality? One, he understands the awkwardness of growth and change and transition. You and I deal with those things. Growth can be awkward. Transition can be difficult. And changes in our life can be anxiety-producing. And you can feel the stress of those things. He knows what that feels like. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. Jesus had to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and knowing the Word of God to respond to temptation, the same things that you and I have to do. He dealt with suffering, with stress. He dealt with abandonment. At the moment when he most needed people to be around him for companionship, for comfort, for help, everyone left his side. He dealt with anxiety, and he experienced all kinds of pain. So Jesus 
knows. He understands. He can relate. He is ready to help. In Hebrews, he's called a high priest who sympathizes. He empathizes, and he loves his people. He provides comfort to those who are in pain. He knows. You're never alone. He knows. Priorities. Jesus lived one human life on earth. As a minute passes by in our life, as a day passes by in our life, same for Jesus. So he chose to use his time in a very specific way. He set his priorities around what God the Father had sent him there for. He said in John chapter 20, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, I now send you. It says earlier in John, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. He sent Jesus into the world with purpose, with a mission. Jesus is a sent one. He's the first true missionary that we've ever had. Jesus is that. And then Jesus again says in John 20, 21, as he's looking at his disciples, as the Father has sent me, as the Father has put me on mission, I now send you, and I put you on mission. So how does it impact us day by day? Are we living out the mission that Jesus has given us? He said, go and make disciples who make more disciples. Are we making disciples? Are we sharing with others who Jesus is, how it can impact their lives and helping them grow deeper in God's word and then share that word and that love with other people? So in my mind, I'm trying to think and wrestle through how do I explain what it feels like to know Jesus is both fully God and fully man for us on a daily basis. And this is what popped in my head. Hopefully this is actually relatable. Have you ever been here, the endless wall trail in the gorge? If you haven't, I encourage you to go check it out. So I'm originally from Canton, Ohio. I've never been to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Sometimes when you live someplace, you just Take for granted the things that are close to you. This is a beautiful thing that's close to here that I encourage you to check out. So how does that relate? On this trail, there's lots of moments where you're basically walking through the woods. You have to focus on the little things. You just focus on the next step. You make sure you don't twist your foot on a rock or twist your ankle on a root. You're just looking down. It reminds me of Jesus being human, and he took a step by step by step as he lived his life. It reminds me of Jesus being with me in the little things, and he's walked these steps before me. But then on this trail, there's little side trails that you take out, and then you hit these overlooks, where all of a sudden you're now looking over the gorge, and you're overwhelmed with how big it is. Like, as you're looking out, the hawks are flying below you. That's how high you are. So in your life, as you're thinking through the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man, you're reminded of these things by these types of images. There's some moments where you're just simply on the trail of life, and all you can focus on is the next step. Remember, Jesus walked that step before you. And there's other moments where you just need to be reminded that he is huge. He is fully God. All things rest in his hands, and he has authority over all things. So sometimes you have to walk out to the edge. I'm scared of heights. I'm never going to walk this close to any edge in my life. But you walk out, and you look out, and you remember that he is fully God, and he's fully present and he has all authority. So we spend our lives learning to walk in his footsteps. I mentioned they're divinely placed, but they're also human-shaped footprints. As you look down at these footprints, as you follow Jesus, you're going to notice two feet, ten toes, and his stride length 
is the same stride length that you have. He literally had human feet. He took human steps with a human stride. So he knows what it feels like to be you. He knows what it feels like to go through hard things. He knows what it feels like to have stress and anxiety. So they're divinely placed. But wow, his foot looks just like mine. So that's a reminder to us to follow him because he knows what it feels like to be us. We can trust him, we can follow him because he's fully God and he's fully man. So we spend our lives learning to walk in his very human-shaped footprints. So we've talked about his nature. He's fully God, he's fully man. Let's talk about his work. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the defining moment of all of human history. If that didn't happen, that's just a ball of fire. Like everything falls apart. Only because of what Jesus did do we have hope, future, and eternal life in front of us. Everything points to it. Everything points back to it. We're going to sing for all of eternity about it. As the Bible says, we will sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain from the moment we die forever, because that's how important it is. It affects our moment, all of human history, and all of eternity. So the way I'd like to talk through his work is by actually walking through parts of our membership statement of faith. So this is coming right out of our membership statement of faith. I'm just going to read parts, and I'm just going to talk about it. There's tons of verses for each one of these parts that you'll find in the membership statement of faith, but I'm not going to cover all of them tonight just for time's sake. So under his work, Jesus actively lived a perfect life and died on the cross. Actively. I want you to catch that word. He didn't passively do it. Jesus chose to live his life without sin. Jesus then chose to die on the cross. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus walked up to the situation where he would then be taken, seized, beaten, and die on the cross. The next section says, standing in our place to bear the full weight of God's wrath. He can stand in our place because he was one of us, because he was human. He can bear the full weight of God's wrath in our place because he's fully God. If he's not fully human or he's not fully God, this doesn't work. So why is his nature important? Because his nature speaks to his work. Without his work, we have no hope. We have nothing. Against, so he took on the full weight of God's wrath against our sin and to satisfy the Father's holy justice and righteous standard. So by Jesus bearing the weight of God's wrath, God the Father stands satisfied with you and me. For those who place their faith in Jesus, God the Father is satisfied with you and I. He looks on Jesus and pardons you. He looks on the death of Jesus and pardons me. The next section says, Jesus offers forgiveness, righteousness, and adoption to all who, by grace through faith, receive him as Savior and Lord. So as he dies on the, on the cross, as he satisfies the wrath of the Father, he now stands in a position to offer to anyone who's willing forgiveness, complete, total, utter forgiveness, righteousness, which means he has, he's offering a right standing that you can now have before God himself. If you have Christ's righteousness, every time you walk into the Father's presence, he has a smiling face. He's happy to see you. No matter what you did that day, no matter what you said to your spouse, to your child, to your boss, 
when you walk into God's presence because of Jesus, you have a right standing and you experience a smiling face and the hug that you so needed and adoption. You are part of a new family because Jesus died in our place, because he satisfied the wrath of God himself. He can offer adoption. Jesus is both, he's our savior, our Lord, and our brother. He offers adoption to all who by grace, through faith, receive him as savior, the one who died in our place, and Lord, he is also God. That was just part A. Part B, he gave himself to redeem us. Jesus freely gave of himself to redeem us. Redeem means to pull out of slavery. You and I were caught in sin. We were enslaved to the enemy. Jesus reaches into our situation, not because we wanted him to. We were actually fighting against him, but he reaches into our situation and he pulls us out of slavery and sets us free. That's what the concept of redemption is. Jesus gave himself. Why? To redeem us. The next slide. And to purify for himself a chosen people, for his own possession, a royal priesthood, zealous for good works. So he redeems us and he purifies us. White as snow, white as snow. And we are a chosen people. Let's go back. We are a chosen people for his own possession. He didn't save you, purify you to give you to someone else. He saves us. He redeems us. He forgives us. He adopts us. And he says, you're mine. You're mine. So that radically changes our relationship with him. When I walk into his presence, I realize Jesus, Jesus is looking down. And he's saying, you are mine. If you're a parent, when you look at your children, you say out loud, you are mine. And that means, anything, means everything. You'll do whatever it takes to take care of your child, even if it means losing your own life. Jesus gets it. We are his possession. We are his children. We are his. And the right result to that, our right response, is we then become zealous for good works. Jesus, if you're going to adopt me, if you're going to purify me, if you're going to satisfy God's wrath against me, if I'm yours, my response is I cannot wait to do things that bring honor and glory to you because I love you. So we're zealous for good works who declare the worth of their Savior through obedience, selflessness, praise, and worship, much like we're doing tonight. Point C, Christ's death made reconciliation possible between God and sinful people. The Bible's clear. Before you and I placed our faith in Jesus— we were at war. We were on one side. God was on the other side. It was a war you were going to lose, by the way. It wasn't a war that we were going to win. We were going to lose. God was going to pour out his wrath on you and me, and it was going to be just, and it was going to be right, and it was going to be well-deserved. But the death that Jesus made in our place brings reconciliation. It makes peace. Where there was hatred and enmity, there's now peace made possible for God and sinful people. It continues. How does this happen? It's through the blood he shed on the cross. The blood he shed. It's just a good reminder. This wasn't easily done. It wasn't a snapping of the fingers or a signing of a name. It was a gruesome death on a cross. Blood was shed that we might experience that reconciliation. It wasn't given easily. It wasn't given painlessly. 
it was given through the shedding of blood on the cross. All believers have peace with God. That's that reconciliation. And all creation will one day be restored and renewed. The work of Christ is felt in my life, in your life, as you believe and you're changed. But one day, the whole world is going to be shaken and made new by the power and work of Christ. The curse of sin affects you, your relationship with God, and your relationships with others. The Bible also says that the curse of sin affected the earth and all of creation. So as the curse is removed from your life, one day the curse is removed from all of creation. And Jesus remakes, renews, restores all that he has made, again, by the work and power of Jesus. Some final thoughts. Our standing before God the Father is based upon the person and work of Jesus. Our purpose and meaning in life is based upon the person and work of Jesus. Our basis for faith, peace, contentment, and unity with one another is based upon the person and work of Christ. The content of our worship now and for all of eternity is based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. It impacts you today. It will impact you tomorrow. It impacts your eternity. There is no greater gift that you can give than introducing someone to Jesus. There's no greater hope that you can have in this life than personally knowing Jesus. Jesus says he is the first, he is the last, he is the alpha, he is the omega. He is our everything, yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. Jesus is our everything. How do we respond? We spend our lives learning to walk in his footsteps. And as we look down, we're reminded these footsteps, they're divinely placed by Jesus, who is fully God. He wants them, he put them exactly where he wants them to be. And those same footprints, they're human-shaped. Ten toes, two feet, a human stride, because he walked ahead of us, and he's walked in front of us for us. The third thing we notice, and though I didn't put it here on the graphic, these feet footprints are also blood-stained. He laid those footprints down with a great cost that landed on him. Only by dying on that cross and shedding his blood could he lay those footprints down for you and I to follow Jesus and to put him at the forefront of our life and to walk in his footsteps. So we look down again at those footprints. They are divinely placed, they're human-shaped, and they are blood-stained. My encouragement to you, my encouragement to me, let's recommit ourselves to following Jesus, to walking in his footsteps. And as we walk in his footsteps, if he calls you into places that are uncomfortable, trust him, keep walking in those footsteps. If he calls you into places that are hard, even painful, keep walking in those footsteps, follow Jesus. Perhaps he's calling you to do things that are difficult. Perhaps he's calling you to connect more deeply with your spouse spiritually with your children, to connect with them more deeply spiritually, to ask that person in your life where you're not sure where they are spiritually, to ask them where they are. If he's calling you to that, if that's your next step, take it. He's fully God. He's fully man. He knows what it feels like. Perhaps those next steps are for you to get on mission, to have your priorities be his priorities. Perhaps it's time for you to start making disciples who make more disciples. Where's that start? talking to your neighbor, talking to your family, talking to the people in your life who need to know Jesus and those who are trying to follow Jesus. By doing that faithfully and consistently, 
you're calling others to follow Jesus and go deeper in him, and they then can help others follow Jesus and go deeper in him as well. We follow his footsteps, and we walk in his mission. That's my prayer. That's my hope. Let me pray for your heart and for mine. Jesus, you are fully God. Jesus, you are fully man. You know what it feels like to walk in these shoes in this world. Lord, I pray that we would trust you with all of our hearts, that we would trust your authority and your presence. And when you say go, that we would go. When you say step, that we would step. When you say walk into this hard place, that we would trust you and walk into it. May we walk in your footsteps. May we make disciples who make disciples. As the Father sent you, you've sent us. May we follow you with all of our heart. We trust you, we love you. Move us forward in Christ's name, amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media. You can also join us in person for services on Thursday at 7 p.m. or Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m.